You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. It's time for the News Roundup. There's a lot to unpack this week. Inflation has gone up again. A bid to buy Twitter may be finally down and out. Fires threaten sequoias in California. And there's news about deleted text messages that concern the Secret Service. There's also a huge row over abortion. And at the center of that story, a 10-year-old victim of rape. Here to tell us more is Anita Kumar. She's Politico's senior editor of Standards and Practices. Anita, thanks for being with us. It's great to be back with you. Jeff Mason is Reuters White House correspondent. Hi there, Jeff. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And Annie Linsky is a White House reporter with The Washington Post. Annie, it's great to have you. Hi, good to be here. So let's begin with the story of a 10-year-old girl in Ohio who was raped and then traveled to Indiana to seek an abortion. That child has been the focus of the national debate around abortion for the last two weeks. 10 years old, raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, 10 years old. That was President Biden speaking last Friday after signing an executive order aimed at protecting access to abortion. In Ohio, abortion is banned six weeks after conception. Now, conservative media outlets, including Fox News and The Wall Street Journal, questioned the legitimacy of that story. And that changed when a man was actually charged with the crime on Wednesday. So, Anita, there has been there's been a lot of back and forth on the details of this case. What do we know for sure? Yeah, the Indianapolis Star first brought the case to the attention, really, of the nation, and it got international attention, too, um, talking about mentioning a doctor who had said that she had treated a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio who had traveled to Indiana um, because she uh, was not able to get an abortion in her home state. There is a law in Ohio which does ban almost all abortions, um, after a heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks. There are a couple exceptions, but it doesn't appear that one of the exceptions is for rape. And so, uh, you know, this this story after it was published got a ton of attention, but there wasn't a lot after that. There wasn't a, a lot of um, support in other news outlets for that. There wasn't a lot of other reporting, and a lot of people were trying to catch up and, and try to find out about this. And that's when, uh, as you mentioned, we, we saw a lot of people sort of doubting doubting what was reported. Um, Ohio's Republican Attorney General Dave Yost dismissed the case as a as possibly a hoax Monday during an interview with Fox News, but he also said this. Ohio's heartbeat law has a medical emergency exception uh, broader than just the life uh, of the mother. Uh, she, th- This young girl, if she exists and if this horrible thing actually happened to her, breaks my heart to think about it, she did not have to leave Ohio to find treatment. So the audio is a little choppy there. But, Jeff, is this true? Is the attorney general accurate in the way he portrays Ohio's abortion ban? I, I don't have the answer to that. But I, I think we do know that this child and, and her, her parents um, made the decision that they needed to go to Indiana for a reason. Yeah. And the, and that's the, and that's, and that's why they did. And, and the allegations that he made and that, um, his, uh, colleague, Indiana Republican attorney general, um, came out then a few days later on Thursday saying that they would investigate or he would investigate whether or not the doctor who performed, um, the abortion had, filed the um, appropriate paperwork and reported it and 
all of that has turned out to be, the answer to that question has turned out to be yes, that Dr. Bernard um, did do those things. But um, an investigation apparently is continuing. I will say that the nonpartisan Ohio Legislative Service Commission um, has made a determination on the question of of, of whether um, children are in would be able to get an abortion. They determined that circumstances like age or rape don't automatically qualify for an exception. And a member of that commission said Ohio's abortion prohibition applies regardless of the circumstances of conception or the age of the mother. So, Annie, what does all of this furor over this story and this poor, this young child's case? What does it tell us about the, the state of the nation when it comes to abortion right now? Well, I, you know, I think there are two separate sort of um, trends and threads that kind of collided in this one story. I mean, the, the one side was the sort of difficulty in um, confirming the reports that various outlets had, which sort of fed into the idea that um, there might be something wrong with the initial report. Um, you know, I think all of us as reporters have been in this circumstance, I know I have, where you get a scoop. It's a really um, important scoop. It's an important news and others are unable to confirm it. Um, and and that, that can be actually quite difficult as a reporter because you're sitting there thinking, oh gosh, I kind of wish somebody else would also get this. Um, but I think that's what, what left this gap and it, it sort of speaks to like a larger problem in the country with lack of local news. You know, in this case, there was a very strong local yeah. reporting and it's unfortunate that there weren't more local outlets that could, you know, match that reporting quickly. But it is just the nature of news that is sometimes you do get something and it takes a little while to confirm. So that that is one separate strand. The other piece of it is stories like this one are... Um, you know, in in a sense, what Democrats um, are are looking looking to to keep this issue of abortion um, top of mind for the country and in the news. And I think that when Democrats talk about the way they believe this issue and the Supreme Court's decision on abortion can help them electorally, it's because um, they anticipate that things like this are going to co- crop up across the country and. You know where, um, you know where, where a story seizes the the country's and uh, to the to India's point, an, an, an international audience. Yeah. You know, often um, when there's a big kind of earth shattering event, let's say a mass shooting, for example, you know the event occurs and there is you know tragically a very familiar aftermath to it, um, but then it ends. And yeah. in this case, the decision is having such a sort of ripple effect um, that it continues to, you know, grab attention well after the initial event. So on the same topic, uh, Thursday, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sued the Biden administration because of federal guidelines that require an abortion be performed if a pregnant person's life is endangered. So Anita, how might this lawsuit complicate matters going forward for the Biden administration? Well, the lawsuit's really asking for them to sort of put a stop to what the Department of Health and Human Services said. So what happened was the Biden administration, as you mentioned, basically told hospitals that they must provide abortion services. 
Uh, what they're saying is that this isn't new guidance, but they're sort of re-upping that guidance. We're seeing a lot of things happening now because of the Supreme Court decision. So they felt that there was a lot of confusion out there with doctors and that they wanted to provide some clarity. And they're saying that, uh, you know, these abortions should go forward. And of course, what Texas is saying is they should not. So we're waiting to sort of see what happens here is, you know, will a judge uh, you know, stop these abortions, uh, you know, in locally, or will it be nationwide? We don't know. Yeah. That is, of course, what Texas wants to happen. And, you know, of course, this is just the first lawsuit. And Texas was was quick to do this as as the attorney general, the Republican attorney general there is is pretty quick to to uh, to do things like this against the Biden administration. But I think that there will be probably other states that join in or have their own suits. This is what we're going to see sort of, you know, in these coming weeks and months is that there's going to be a lot of legal challenges over some of these rules and regulations. Yeah, sure. Um, The Biden administration also has said pharmacies must fill reproductive health prescriptions or risk being in violation of federal law. So, So, Jeff, what qualifies as reproductive health prescriptions? Well, that is sort of to to pick up where Anita left off. Uh, also, not necessarily n- new guidance, but it's it's the administration's effort to shore up already existing law on abortion, and, and to the extent that it is still applicable after the Supreme Court um, after the Supreme Court ruling. And and what this did is it said that pharmacies and or this guidance from from the Department of Health and Human Services is. Uh, it said that pharmacies and pharmacists would run afoul of pregnancy and disability discrimination laws if they refused to disperse drugs that could be used to terminate a pregnancy, including those that for, for medical abortion and emergency contraceptives. So, Annie, I assume this is a, an attempt by the administration to remind um, medical providers about federal law, but also to save some lives in case doctors are confused. Yeah, I think it's also an effort by the Biden administration to show that they are doing something, even though, to, you know, to Jeff's point, this is not necessarily n- new guidance. And it, quite frankly, um, the, the statements coming out of the administration did not go as far as um, some of the advocates would have liked. Um, you know, it, it, you know, the guidance refers to whether or not um, the civil rights laws could be broken yeah. rather than just a flat out, you know, requirement to fill mm-hmm. these prescriptions. Um, but, you know, the Biden administration and President Biden has been under extraordinary pressure yeah. from Democrats who are saying, look, he's just not being going hard, hard enough on yeah. this issue and is, is not capturing the um, anger that many on the left are feeling. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat therapy sessions. And you can be matched with your therapist in under 48 hours. NPR listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. 
So, Anita, let's begin with you. Tuesday's hearing spent a lot of time on one specific meeting in December 2020. Can can you give us a, a brief summary of what happened at that meeting and why it's so important? Yeah, they, uh, the committee, the January 6th committee sort of revealed that they had gotten information about this December 18th, 2020 meeting. It was in the Oval Office and that basically was, as described, sort of chaotic, um, you know, that there are people, you know, Trump advisors and allies sort of talking and hashing things out about the election. And President Trump was there sort of watching and looking looking on. Um, you have, you know, members of the committee are saying this is really important because we are learning that President Trump got to watch up close for hours, really, as his lawyers, the White House Counsel's Office, other lawyers uh, basically tell these outside advisors of President Trump that, look, these plans that they had to 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 dispute the election were, weren't going to go anywhere. And in fact, were sort of ridiculous and, and far-fetched and, and that he couldn't do it. And so we had seen that some of these folks that were in the office were his attorney, Sidney Powell, uh, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and some others that he had, you know, President Trump was, <laughs> throughout his time in office, had a lot of outside advisors that sort of came into the White House at, to advise him and, and often got into conflicts with, with White House officials. And so this was a moment where we really saw that happening with what he was planning on doing and with the presidential election. So, Jeff, the hearing on Tuesday also included um, testimony from a number of former militia members, including really compelling testimony from Jason Tatenhove. Wednesday, uh, Tatenhove spoke to 1A about why he ultimately left the far-right group, the Oath Keepers. Once Stewart decided to court the alt-right, when he started engaging with people like Richard Spencer, um, that is really where I had to draw the line. And I actually, I, I related to this in my testimony, but I had walked into one of the, the only uh, supermarket in the area that I was living in, northwestern Montana, is kind of where everyone that was uh, a part of that inner core lived. And um, there were some key members and associates that were there in a public space that were speaking about how the Holocaust had never happened. And that to me was was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, my my I have family that's Jewish and and I just I've never been a racist, I've never been an anti-Semite, you know, I've never been violent. The Stuart Jason refers to there as Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers. Rhodes has since been charged with seditious conspiracy because of his actions on January 6th. But during Tuesday's hearing, committee members tried to draw this direct connection between former President Trump and far-right extremist groups like the Oath Keepers. And I, I wonder, Jeff, do you think they succeeded? Well, I think it's. I think you're spot on to say that that's the connection that they were trying to draw, and and the interview um, that you that you just played was compelling. As was his testimony. He said in his testimony that they that he believed the country was lucky there wasn't more bloodshed on January sixth, which is quite um, compelling to have that to hear that from someone from the Oath Keepers who was taking part. But to your broader question, um, I think that the committee's uh, desire and effort on that day was to. Uh, prove and and illustrate the connection between uh, President Trump's uh, tweets and and his call to action, his call to um, his supporters to come to the Capitol on January 6th, to come to Washington on on January 6th, um, how that was a rallying cry. And it was a rallying cry for these right-wing groups. And and they used people from those groups to illustrate that in addition to 
um, sh sharing not only his, the, the tweets that were sent, but one tweet in particular that was not sent uh, to show that he had been planning, and he and his uh, and others around him had been planning essentially for uh, the raid on the Capitol, uh, despite the fact that that um, they they have the Trump folks have tried to distance themselves from uh, from that allegation. So, Annie, we also have this question of deleted text messages. Uh, the committee, the January 6th committee, received a letter from the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General, and it turns out the Secret Service erased te text messages sent on January 5th and January 6th. And the Secret Service maintains the text messages were lost as a result of a device replacement program. But we have this comment from Jan in Winter Springs, Florida, who says the Secret Service reported they did not delete the text on purpose and they are cooperating. Yeah, right. Give me a break. They wanted to remove Pence from the Capitol. Now this. Who are they loyal to and what are they hiding? Annie, what is the significance of these deleted texts? Well, I, you know, I think that um, particularly given the role um, that that we've seen the Secret Service play in, in, in this key moment where Trump, you know, wanted to go to the Capitol um, with his supporters and was prevented from doing so. You know, that has been the testimony of the January 6th committee. I think that is one area that these texts, if they still existed, would really illuminate or would potentially illuminate. Um, I think that the time period in which these texts have been deleted, you know, is, is understandably, you know, qu question raising. It, it's, uh, um, you know, we, we've, we've all had the circumstance of having a new phone and losing some of the data, but um, it, it's a, a very strange um, I think suspicious might be the word and, and you I heard you looking understand. for. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a little well, suspicious. The, right. The leader, the, your readers, or the listeners comment, it's certainly the timing does not look great in this moment. Yeah. So, you know, I think it just continues to draw questions to some of these institutions that have, um, you know, have been eroding in the la and over the course of the past, you know, several years. And that it, it, it is a, a little disjointed that, that revelation. And then, Anita, at the end of the hearing Tuesday, committee vice chair representative Liz Cheney dropped this bombshell. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us, and this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. Jeff, do we have any more details about this? Well, we have um, a reaction from Trump's uh, spokesman uh, suggesting, although not outright denying, but suggesting that People are just accepting what um, Representative Cheney said and, and suggesting that it is false. Uh, but we don't know who the person is, and um, presumably that's something that we'll, we'll find out in the, in the coming weeks and, and perhaps, in the, perhaps, I don't know this, but perhaps in the next round of testimony. But I do think it's interesting what um, Congresswoman Cheney did there as well in that uh, she, she is, in addition to the lines that we talked about earlier and the con connections that the committee is drawing, they are also clearly now 
trying to set up um, information for the Department of Justice to sort of take the ball and run with it. Yeah. And that applies to, I think, a lot of the, the narrative that they've been describing and, and having people describe during these hearings, but also that very specific action of potential witness tampering uh, and anything else along those lines. So a former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, has been in the headlines for a whole host of reasons this week. Um, let's begin with his contempt trial, which starts next Monday. And Annie, can you remind us what this contempt trial is about? Um, yes, uh, uh, Steve Bannon has been, um, uh, you know, un- unwilling uh, so far to testify before the January 6th committee. And there is an effort to get him to to, to do so. And I think, um, you know, he, he has been sort of in and out of the Trump orbit, kind of ping-ponging throughout his career. Um, and some so- sort of spotlight on what he would say in on, in this hearing is something that I think many, many Democrats and, you know, I, I think Americans would be interested in. So, you know, there's just this ongoing process about whether he will or will not testify. And, and once again, we have leaked audio that could uh, spell trouble for Donald Trump. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to clear himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. So that was Steve Bannon speaking during a meeting on October 31st of 2020. And what he described is extremely close to what actually happened. Anita, what does this audio mean? How could it be used by the January 6th committee? Yeah, I mean, uh, if verified, it, it it does seem to indicate what they've been trying to say all along in the January 6 uh, hearings is that President Trump, you know, never had had planned all this, right? He had never uh, expected to concede. He had always expected to say he won, whether or not he did win on that day. And of course, as you indicated, this was just three days before the election, and this was published by Mother Jones uh, news outlet, and so. It, this is just indicating more evidence that if this is true, that he did plan this out and was never planning to 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 concede and, and to go forward. So uh, they could use this. They could try to get more information about it. Of course, as we as Annie just mentioned, you know, Steve Bannon has not been willing to come forward to testify. So we haven't heard from him. He did sort of make this last ditch effort to sort of say he might be willing to testify, but there are a lot of people that are just saying that that is is because he was trying to postpone his own um, contempt charge and and trial that you indicated is going to is going to start soon. So let's uh, turn to the economy. Inflation now stands at nine point one percent. Incredible! That marks a forty year high. Uh, President Biden acknowledged on Wednesday that inflation was unacceptably high, but he also said a report citing this spike is out of date. And then there's a Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He had a more alarmed response and says inflation now poses a quote clear and present danger to our economy, unquote. Jeff, how important is this issue when it comes to politics? It's huge. It's absolutely huge. I mean, it, it, it could spell doom for 
the Democrats' uh, chances of holding on to the House of Representatives or the Senate in November. Uh, it absolutely now, after what Senator Manchin has said, uh, spells doom for their chances of getting a so-called reconciliation package passed, uh, which would have had some funding, uh, critical funding, for uh, the president's uh, agenda on climate change um, and and his desire to raise taxes on on the wealthy. Those things are now out the door without uh, Senator Manchin's um, support, and he's, he's citing his reason or primary reason, I guess, for not doing that. Uh, is because of these these inflation figures. It also, I mean, more broadly to your question on the politics of this, look, Americans vote on their pocketbooks. Yeah. And um, I think that's one reason the president and his, his aides um, started even before the data came out uh, trying to say that it is not as up-to-date as it, as it would be uh, because gas prices have come down a little bit um, in the last uh, few weeks. And so that's not reflected in, in, in these figures and likely will be reflected in figures coming um, out the next time. But 9.1 is a brutal number, um, both economically and politically. So, Annie, Joe Manchin is also making headlines today um, because he's using inflation as a reason to to sort of kill a lot of initiatives. Uh, what is Manchin's position on some of these climate change bills that he's giving thumbs down to? Yes, and this is like a, this is a very familiar um, sort of movie that we've seen, a very familiar script from Joe Manchin. Um, this is what he said in December when he killed the last sort of near compromise on what then Biden was calling his Build Back Better agenda. Um, he's saying that, um, you know, there's too much money in the economy and um, that spending more, additional government spending is going to just increase and um, make inflation worse. Um, and, you know, he's making a simple, you know, it's sort of the same players, the same arguments, um, although inflation has gotten worse since then. Um, and, and what it means is that um, major chunks of the Democratic, even even if a slim-back Democratic agenda would be jettisoned. Right. Um, he, he's saying, you know, n- not only m- like any of the climate spending, which is critical for Biden's um, goal of keeping, um, you know, global warming and emissions, lo- well, lowering yeah. emissions over the next 10, 15 years, would be gone. Um, yeah. But also, you know, the, the other Democratic priorities are also not going to see the light of day with yeah. this sort of posture. So one last thing, um, Tesla founder Elon Musk is trying to back out of the deal he struck with Twitter to buy that social media company for $44 billion. Twitter is now suing him, and, and that sets the stage for possibly a lengthy legal battle that could determine the future of Twitter. Um, and Anita, if you can do it in, in a minute, can you explain why Musk is trying to back out? Well, we don't really know. I mean, he said it's because of these bots that he, you know, he's afraid that some of these numbers that Twitter is saying that they have of, of users isn't real. But this is something he raised before he was going to buy. In fact, he said he would fix it yeah. if he became if he owned it. So that's what Twitter is saying is, look, you said this is one of the reasons you wanted to buy Twitter and now you're saying it's a reason to get out of it. So, we don't really know, but there was a lengthy and colorful lawsuit that was filed um, by Twitter saying Saying that he basically backed out of this and he needs to continue on uh, with this with this with this sale. And they also used his tweet of a poop emoji as evidence against him. 
Can you yeah, explain that's that? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I said it was lengthy and colorful. That it actually used <laughs> tweets. It actually used emojis. It had all these different sort of funny things in this, which is what you would expect with, you know, Elon Musk and Twitter, I suppose. You know, the question really just goes back to, does he have the money to buy this? And and there are a lot of people saying, look, he didn't. he doesn't have the money outright to buy, and that's why he backed out. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. As a reminder, if you want your questions answered on future topics or if you just want to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. It's the News Roundup. Let's get back to our conversation. Um, There is more leaked surveillance footage that shows Uvalde police officers milling around inside an elementary school as a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers early this year. This CCTV video was released by the Austin American Statesman, and it set off, understandably, another wave of anger among the family members of those who were killed that day. Officials say they'd planned to show Uvalde residents the video on Sunday. We're angry. We're very angry. And we want justice for our kids. And for this to be let out without us even being seen first... We are the parents that lost our children. We're supposed to do this together first, not for the world. We're suffering, and I know the world is suffering too, but these were our babies. Our babies that were taken from us. So to the person that leaked it, screw you. Screw you, and that's coming from me, Felicia Martinez. From all of us, screw you. That was Felicia Martinez, mother of Javier James Lopez, who was 10 years old and one of the victims at the school shooting in Uvalde. Anita, there are some ethics issues here. What do you make of this backlash over releasing this video before parents were able to see it? Well, I don't think that was the intent, um, but as we've heard from officials in Texas, there's been sort of a lot of back and forth on this. The, I think one of the things, of course, the anger is is from stemming from the shooting, but in the aftermath, there's the, the families, the parents haven't really gotten sort of the clear picture of what happened, but they're also not getting a clear picture of how this investigation is going. And I think that's part of the anger there is that they keep hearing different things and then other things happen, right? They expected to get this video. They expected to see it. And then there's some been some back and forth about it. Uh, you know, then we don't know who leaked it, uh, you know, or leaked part of it or leaked it. And, and of course, a news outlet decided to publish that. So, I mean, there are a lot of different issues here. The public does have the right to know sort of what happened in this shooting that, that that people should be held accountable. But of course, the parents rightly feel like they should be getting the full picture here and they should be getting it first. And that's simply not what has happened sort of every step of the way all these many weeks after the shooting. So Jeff, the uploaded video was 80 minutes long. If we're talking about the full picture that Anita referred to, what new details are revealed in this video about what happened that day, especially about why it took officers so long to intervene? Do we know? Well, I, I, unfortunately, I think answers to those questions are going to be are never going to be satisfying and 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 probably never going to be entirely clear. But what the video does is is quite literally give you a picture of what happened uh, with those officers as they were 
uh, waiting. And, and it also shows that they were well armed and, and had gear and, and, and had guns and had the equipment, um, but were either waiting for orders or in some cases retreating. Um, and that's just very, very painful, uh, certainly for the parents and families, but also for really anyone to watch. And of course, uh, what happened in Uvalde is just part of the larger conversation on gun violence. Um, Speaking during a celebration of a bipartisan gun safety law that was passed last month, President Biden called for an assault weapon ban yet again. Assault weapons need to be banned. They were banned. I led the fight in 1994. Then under pressure from the NRA and the gun manufacturers and others, that ban was lifted in 2004. In that 10 years, it was law mass shootings went down. When the law expired in 2004 and those weapons were allowed to be sold again, mass shootings tripled. They're the facts. I'm determined to ban these weapons again and high-capacity magazines that hold 30 rounds and then let mass shooters fire hundreds of bullets in a matter of minutes. I'm not going to stop until we do it. Senator John Cornyn of Texas was the lead Republican architect of the bipartisan gun safety law, but he said this week he's shutting the door on any additional negotiations. Annie, why is he has he decided to shut this down? I mean, I look, I think it's important to remember that um, conservatives view this issue very differently than um, than than Democrats and um, liberals do, and they do not believe that um, high capacity weapons are the root cause of these of these shootings and and it and that is something that is culturally difficult for um, people to hear I mean I you know I think that um, that polling on this issue says one thing but Republicans and conservatives just are not do not view it the same way and they have um, the ability to, to block these kinds of, of rules and so I don't think it's a big surprise that that um, Cornyn would do that I think it is a what it was a surprise to me is that there was any action on this issue um, and that Cornyn, who in the past um, has a long history of, you know, participating in negotiations and then pulling out of those mm-hmm. negotiations or blocking them at the last minute, um, you know, that was a surprise. But the the idea of a, a assault weapons ban at this moment, I think, is just kind of beyond where the politics is. Tuesday, the Senate confirmed former U.S. Attorney Stephen Dettelbach to lead the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. He is the first chief of the ATF in seven years. Um, Anita, he's also the only the second director in the agency's history to receive a Senate confirmation. What do we know about Dettelbach and his view, especially at this point, um, of the increasing gun violence in the nation? Yeah, I mean, this this I can't state enough how huge this is. I've been following this issue for a long time and for them to, you know, for for President Biden to get someone through finally is is just a huge deal. Um, he We know that he's a graduate of Harvard Law School. He uh, worked in a, a, some posts around the, the Washington, D.C. area and Maryland as well. And then he became uh, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Ohio, which includes uh, Cleveland. 
Um, and so he had been confirmed before um, by the Senate. And so that was one uh, key indication that it might go that way this time. That's not always the, that doesn't always mean that'll happen. But, you know, he, he did things a little bit differently. He, he, had, he has more of a low-key ap- approach um, and, and sort of has tried to already make inroads with folks in the agency. Of course, this is a key time, both because we're seeing a lot of shootings, um, but also because this bill just passed that we that we were just talking about, and uh, you know the the ATF is you know has some of the agents that are going to be pushing this through to, to make that law put that into reality. There's a lot of pressure on them right now when there's so much talk about gun violence in America. So uh, this is a big win for the for the Biden administration that they did get this through with a couple Republicans uh, voting for his uh, confirmation as well. You've said this is a really big deal. And and I don't think many people are talking about it. How do you think they did get this? I mean, it's been seven years. How did they finally cross this finish line? Yeah, for those that have been following, you know, and I know Jeff and Annie have as well, but, you know, I've been covering the you know, the the gun violence issue from from the White House perspective in my previous job for for 10 years. And this is something that they, you know, President Obama tried to have someone cut through uh, permanently, President Trump. Obviously, there was one person, um, but it, it is a big deal because guns in America are such a huge issue. It divides the country so much. You know, we've talked about two of these big issues, abortion and guns, that just really are culturally divisive in this country. And so, you know, one of the things that people said ab- about him was that he he wasn't like the previous uh, nominee that President Biden first, this is President Biden's second nominee. The first nominee was someone who had worked on some of these gun uh you know, what people call gun control groups, right? He'd been very much out there espousing democratic talking points in his previous jobs. This is someone who was a little bit more low-key. He tried to make inroads on the Hill. He tried to make inroads with the agency. Both of those things, uh, you know, were a little bit different uh, than the previous uh, person President Biden had pushed through. So I think it was they learned some lessons. And I do think that there's a moment in this country right now where people are really looking for Congress to get something done, for the administration to get something done. It's really the reason that you saw the Senate pass that bill uh, that we just saw a few weeks ago. Jeff, what power does the ATF director have? Well, I think it's, I think Anita was right to say, you know, this is, this is a government agency. And, and the fact that it's been uh, without a leader for, for so long really underscores how big of a deal it is to get somebody in. And yeah. just to add a couple details to her answer, the, it was a 48 to 46 vote uh, in the Senate and two Republicans joined, uh, Senator Collins and, uh, and Senator Portman. Um, but what you know, the, the White House has been saying, we need this because this is an agency that, that, can, that, that can do so, so many things on this policy. It doesn't mean all of a sudden the ATF can install... A, a an assault weapons ban that's right. not going to happen but uh, but they have they have tools and they have jurisdiction in this area and having a leader was very important to the Biden administration let's talk a little about the climate before we go um, in California a wildfire has torn through more than 4,000 acres of Yosemite National Park and Sierra National Forest uh, the so-called washburn fire has been blazing for more than a week now. Firefighters are racing to keep the public safe, but also to protect the state's famous giant sequoia trees. 
Annie, can you tell us a little bit more about the efforts to contain this fire or kind of a status update? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just anybody who has seen pictures of these trees or has, you know, and has been in their presence can understand just how magical and important they are. And, you know, at this point, um, they ha- they have persisted. They are, have, they have, you know, there's, there's not been, um, they have not burned to the ground, but th- this idea that they are being threatened is sort of a threatened to, it's a threat to a, a sort of national treasure. Um, you know, you're certainly seeing other parts of, of the park decimated though. And anyone who's visited Yosemite knows that there have been, that park has survived many other fires, but, you know, there are reports of, you know, the wildlife, the grizzly bears, um, that are threatened and being, um, you know, having to escape this fire and, and also the sort of potential threats to, um, to, like, to human beings and our, um, and property. Um, and, but it, this has become a, just a persistent problem in the West. And more and more there's become this culture of, you know, um, homeowners who are learning how to do what seems to many people like the impossible of living year after year after year with this threat. Yeah. Um, but, but you are seeing some kind of like um, joining up of... Um, farmers and ranchers with environmentalists who are beginning to sort of see some of the same patterns, even if politically they are at times, you know, very far apart. So I think that is one thing that I certainly watch in this debate, but this is a really, really dramatic, um, you know, you know, illustration of it. And uh, the oldest sequoia tree there is 3,266 years old in the Grand Giant Sequoia National Monument. But let's go move south to Texas, where the power grid is reaching its breaking point. Twice this week, the state's power grid operator, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, has asked residents to conserve energy to protect that grid. Anita, we also heard that the grid was overloaded when it was too cold, now that it's too hot. Um, Why is the grid so overloaded right now? Yeah, so frustrating for people that live there, I'm sure. Um, You know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of different things happening, but obviously right now there's a huge demand because of higher than normal temperatures, right? This is part of the issue with global warming. They've also had higher than expected outages at coal and natural gas-fired plants, uh, low wind, so it's sort of a confluence of, of different things, but this has really sort of shined a light again. You know, there's there's all sorts of things all around the country uh, where we, you know, take take stock and think about climate change and what needs to be done and, and what is happening. And so uh, I'm sure the people there are frustrated, but it does shine a light on this bigger issue of what needs to be done to, to uh, combat this issue. So, Jeff... What might, uh, could there be a response, a legislative response or a political response in Texas to this these constant demands on the power grid and, and might it involve environmentally friendly power? <laughs> Let's, I chuckle only because <laughs> the, 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 the phrase environmentally friendly power and Texas aren't necessarily two things you would um, normally connect. This is a, this is a big oil state. This is a fossil fuel state. Um, and its leadership is is largely Republican, and the Republican voices there have um, a, a very dominant impact on uh, energy policy. 
I, so, so to answer your question specifically, probably not. Yeah. Um, but that said, I think it's also useful to sort of draw a few different conversations here together. Yeah. You are seeing, regardless of whether it's a so-called blue or red state, Jeff Mason is Reuters White House correspondent. Uh, Anita Kumar is Politico's senior editor of Standards and Practices. And Annie Linsky is White House reporter with The Washington Post. Thanks so much to all of you. And remember, the 1A podcast is a great way to catch up on anything you might have missed. It has both hours of the news roundup every Friday. So if you want to catch up on the week's this week's international news, you can check that out. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White, and it's time for the International News Roundup. Every chance to return to this great country, where the ancient roots of the Jewish people date back to biblical times, is a blessing. Because the connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep. President Biden spent Thursday with Israeli caretaker Prime Minister Yair Lapid the focus on Iran's nuclear program. Today, the president travels to Saudi Arabia after meeting with Palestinian leaders in the West Bank. Iran has been a focus throughout the week, and that's where Russian President Vladimir Putin is off to next. We'll talk about all of that. Uh, And we're on the ground in Sri Lanka after days of mass protests forced its president to flee the country. So let's welcome our guests. Jennifer Williams is a deputy editor at Four and policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Jen, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. On the line from Tel Aviv is Nina Maria Potts, Global News Director for Feature Story News. Nina Maria, we appreciate your being with us as well. Hi there. And here in the studio, James Kitfield. James is the Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and contributing writer at The Atlantic, also author of In the Company of Heroes, Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks for coming James. Good to be with you. So President Biden is in the Middle East. It is the first trip uh, to the region of his presidency. Today is is possibly the trickiest part of this visit. Uh, there's a controversial meeting with Saudi's crown prince. So Nina Maria, why does President Biden think this trip is both necessary and that it's necessary right now? Well, maybe just to unpack uh the first part of the trip so far, which has been rather awkward at times. Any visit by any American president, obviously always significant internationally because the US is Israel's staunchest ally. Very striking here in Tel Aviv how his meetings have really highlighted significant differences in approach. Uh, The goal of this trip goes well beyond the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. It's certainly been partly about that. Today, uh, Biden, before heading to Saudi, uh, spent his last few hours trying to restore relations with the Palestinians uh, while he said it's not the time for new Israeli-Palestinian talks. He did mention for the first time the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh calling for accountability. But as you said, I mean, the trip is not actually about the Palestinians. A lot of the focus has been on Iran, both Israel and the US pledging to stop Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, but awkwardly divided over how to achieve that. Uh, The problem uh, on Iran is that Biden wants a return to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, and he believes that diplomacy is the only way to get there. Uh, The Israelis saying that diplomacy won't stop Iran, the only way is to sort of put a credit 
credible military threat on the table. Uh, Israel wants to move on from the Iran nuclear deal, and you can debate whether that's a strategic mistake. It's also stepped up its efforts to destabilize the Iranian regime. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, sees military action only as a last resort. There's also Israel and Saudi, and separately the US and Saudi, Biden trying to reframe relations on all sides. Uh, Saudi opened its airspace to Israeli aircraft earlier today, uh, just before Biden set off for Jeddah, uh, signaling a warmer approach. But the bigger context to Biden's trip is basically to smooth things over with Israel, separately smooth things over with the Palestinians and most importantly, perhaps with Saudi. He's talking energy security, keeping global oil supplies going. Hugely controversial visit, right. given that just two years ago he called Saudi a pariah state. Yeah, and in a sit-down for Israeli TV, President Biden was questioned about comments made by members of his own party, um, some of whom have called Israel an, a, quote, apartheid state. There are a few of them. I think they're wrong. I think they're making a mistake. Israel is a democracy. Israel is our ally. Israel is a friend. And uh, I think that I make no apologies. We've, we've provided for, in my administration, $4 billion plus another billion for Iron Dome. There's no possibility, I think, of uh, the Democratic Party or even a significant portion of the Republican Party walking away from Israel. So, James, there was a time, and it was recent, when no American politician would criticize Israel, even obliquely. What has changed? Well, what changed that dynamic was really President, former President Trump. I mean, the traditional American, and I think that Biden is trying to sort of normalize the traditional American approach to U.S.-Israeli relations. Very strong security support for Israel, but also trying to push a two-state solution to, to get the Palestinian question off the table once and for all. It's been 50 years hanging over that, our relationship. Uh, President Trump took a whole different tack. He, he basically gave Israel everything it wanted. He had this strange bromance with Bibi Netanyahu, gave him everything that the Israelis wanted, including moving the embassy to our U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, giving Israel sort of uh, carte blanche to say they could, you know, exert rights over the Golan Heights, defunding the Palestinian Authority, just, you know, basically everything Israel wanted and, and, de- and sort of delegitimizing the Palestinians. And, you know, they got the Abraham Accords out of that, where the UAE and Bahrain sort of recognized Israel for the first time. That was an accomplishment, but it, it, it leaves this sort of Palestinian question hanging. And I think President Biden is trying to get back to a place where we are a strong supporter of Israel, but at the same time, we also were pushing those two-state solutions because we see that in, in, in Israel's interest for the future. At some point, it will not be a democratic Jewish state on its current track. So here's President Biden again. He's given his reasons why America's presence in the region is still crucial. And he's speaking at a press conference Thursday. I'm going to be meeting with nine other heads of state. And so there are so many issues at stake that I want to make clear that we can continue to lead in the region and not create a vacuum, a vacuum that is filled by China and or Russia. And so the purpose of the visit is to... uh, coordinate with nine heads of state, what are in U.S. interest, and I believe in Israel's interest as well. So, Jen, The Economist um, ran a headline last week about this being a, quote, aimless trip to the Middle East. What are the aims of the Biden administration here? Yeah, I'd say rather than being aimless, it almost has too many aims. Um, There are so many things, just as Nina Maria and James have laid out, there are so many things Biden is trying to accomplish with this trip. Um, You know, in particular, the 
Russian war in Ukraine has really kind of, as we've seen, upended geopolitics, you know, around the world. Um, it has caused this massive problem in the oil market. In particular, Biden wants to encourage Saudi and the other OPEC countries to increase their oil production. They have already agreed to do so. It's unclear whether they can actually do all that much more given capacity issues. But also, you know, Biden would very much like to get the Saudis a little bit more on side when it comes to pushing back against Russia. Uh, Reuters actually just reported yesterday that Saudi Arabia, which, reminder, is the world's largest oil exporter itself, more than doubled the amount of Russian fuel oil it imported in the second quarter. So Saudi Arabia is increasing its purchases of Russian oil basically mm. to use the cheaper Russian oil to fuel its own country while it sets, you know, sells its more expensive crude, which, you know, smart economically for Saudi Arabia. But Biden would very much, and, and you know, it's Western America's Western allies in Europe would very much like the Saudis to not be purchasing Russian oil and undercutting their sanctions regime. So there's that whole piece of it, in addition to all the other stuff that everyone else just laid out. So it's a really important trip. Biden would like to tell the Middle East that, hey, the U.S. is still here. We're not leaving. But also we would love if you guys could get your act together, do a little bit more maybe regional integration, some air defense integration between the GCC countries in Israel, et cetera, so that the U.S. can maybe take a little bit of a step back and focus on, you know, all the other problems it's trying to address <laughs> what? right What now. other problems? Nina Maria, how much interest is there between leadership in Saudi Arabia and Israel to work more closely together when it comes to issues like Iran? Well, there's been a rapprochement. Um, Biden clearly has a very fine balancing act. Uh, as Jen said, he's, you know, trying to reframe ties. Uh, he's trying to boost oil supplies. Uh, he's been very insistent that he's addressing issues much wider than human rights. He's getting a lot of criticism over this trip, over his meeting with MBS, uh, who obviously denies any role in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, which lies at the core uh, of the issue. In terms of Israel narrowly uh, and its relationship to Saudi Arabia, I mean, uh, I think we're seeing this... Um, tightening of ties with certain Gulf leaders. And I think uh, there have been at least warm signals uh, coming from Saudi's direction, especially over this deal uh, to allow uh, Israeli flights, more Israeli flights certainly over uh, Saudi. Um, the optics are very tricky uh, of this trip to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, he's trying to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia closer to a diplomatic relationship. Uh, there are, as you say, shared concerns about Iran's missile program and influence yeah. in the region. Uh, but yeah, it's um, a tricky one and uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting and closely watched trip. So, James, next Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin is scheduled to visit Tehran for a trilateral meeting with leaders from Russia, Iran and Turkey. What's the focus of this meeting? The focus is, well, the focus is Syria. Uh, and uh, basically, Putin is making President Biden's case that, if you know, American sort of stepping back from the Middle East will just be, will give a vacuum that Russia and China will happily fill. Russia wants to make the point that it has reasserted its presence in the Middle East when it interjected in the Syrian civil war on behalf of Assad, uh, the war criminal. Uh, it's it's very close to Iran in that effort. So they have a close alliance now. And he's asking Iran for 500 plus or hundreds of drones, which makes the point that the the Ukraine war is a, is a manpower and equipment meat grinder for the Russians. And they're having to go to a regional power like Iran and ask for help. 
Um, so it's and for all those reasons, I think that Putin saw this as a, a nice way to sort of bracket President Trump's Middle East, Middle East visit. I should say during that visit, though, President Trump, I'm, I'm sorry, President Biden said um, that for the first time, the U.S. would use military force to keep Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. We've never said that before. It's reminiscent of him saying that we would also come to the uh, you know aid of Taiwan militarily if China moved on that. He's that's a pretty big deal because that strategic ambiguity has been used for years by American presidents to create some room for them to maneuver and leave doubt in the minds of their adversaries. You know, Biden himself said at one time as vice president, you know, big powers don't bluff. He has now put us on the side of we will move militarily against Iran, which is closely aligned with Russia, if it is going to acquire a nuclear weapon. That makes the Israelis very happy, but it's it's a big commitment. So you mentioned that President Putin is is, is is looking for hundreds of surveillance drones drones from Iran. That's something that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned about earlier this week. Our information indicates that the Iranian government is preparing to provide Russia with up to several hundred UAVs, including weapons-capable UAVs, on an expedi- expedited timeline. Our in- information further indicates that Iran is preparing to train Russian forces to use these UAVs with initial training sessions slated to begin as soon as early July. It's unclear whether Iran has delivered any of these UAVs to Russia already. So, Jen, UAVs are these surveillance drones. How, if, if this deal goes through, how might it affect the conflict in Ukraine? Yeah, so UAV, um, unmanned aerial vehicles. Yeah, drones. Um, so both sides, both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, as James said, are in this kind of, you know, manpower weapons meat grinder Russia is losing massive amounts of drones. Ukraine is also losing a lot of its drones, the drones in particular that it's getting from Turkey, which is interesting because Turkey, Iran, and Russia will be also meeting amid this, you know, uh, Russia-Iran potential deal for drones. Um, It will help the Russians re kind of restock, be able to continue to do, you know, potentially if they're missile capable drones. Um, Iran does make a lot of different drones. They make some really big heavy arm drones, um, the Shahed 129, the Mohajer 6. They also make the Ababil 2 strike and reconnaissance drone. Most experts think, though, that if Moscow has requested this many, you know, hundreds of drones, they're probably going to be some of the smaller ones, but they could be the missile capable ones. They could be just for surveillance. But, you know, essentially both sides are kind of crowdsourcing drones at this point. Ukraine is literally asking for, you know, GoFundMe type uh, funds to help buy more drones. Russia has asked its own population to pitch in, to chip in, to give money so that they can buy more drones, that they can buy more weapons. It's just a really brutal kind of each side shooting down each other's drones, lots of equipment loss. Russia is under lots of sanctions, of course, so it is struggling to get access to parts to rebuild and repair, um, you know, lots of you know, tanks, weapons, drones, etc. So I think it'll help. Uh, it'll help in terms of not a positive help. It'll help continue the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. It will It will mean that we're going to see both sides continuing to be rearmed and restocked. So there's no sign that, you know, the conflict is going to end anytime soon. So, Nina Maria, Western sanctions on Russian oil and gas have forced the country to sell to alternative markets. We mentioned um, sales with Saudi Arabia. But what impact is all of this having on Iranian crude oil? Well, I think it's worth um, just looking more broadly at the Russia 
Iran relationship, which has definitely shifted, even though it's a kind of complex relationship since uh, the war uh, started in, in Ukraine. Uh, before the war, Russia had a slightly ambiguous attitude towards Iran, at best cautious, because Moscow had economic ties with the West now that Russia itself uh, is isolated. It's looking to find ways to survive sanctions, which obviously Iran knows a lot about. Uh, for Iran, there's a fresh opportunity here to get close to Russia. And now Russia sees Iran as an ally uh, because it sees that Iran can help sell oil and energy, uh, its oil and energy, and therefore avoid sanctions. And that dynamic gives Iran badly needed support for the regime. Uh, there's the kind of united we stand perception, which as a bloc, Russia and Iran can signal to the rest of the world uh, that it doesn't really need the West. Uh, so, you know, that speaks directly to the question of crude uh, from Iran. Whatever the West does is basically the message, the, the optics are that they're not isolated because they're in the same club. Um, whether there's public trust in either Iran or Russia to support a new, closer relationship, I'm not sure. Uh, there does seem to be some public sympathy for Ukraine among some Iranians, and at least an awareness or a suspicion of Russia's intentions, uh, with Iran unlikely to want anything that looks like it's becoming a Russian colony. So, James, the meeting between Vladimir Putin, uh, the Turkish president, president Erdogan, and the Iranian president, Raisi, comes after President Biden finishes his visit to the Middle East. And I wonder how important are these sometimes historic Middle East alliances for both Russia and the U.S. as as tensions continue to grow, have have always grown? Right. You know, uh, the, it's not original thought that, the, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine from, by Russian forces, we're really going back to a, a dynamic that resembles the early days of the Cold War where everyone, you know, rushed to find a, a block that they wanted to be in. Uh, and you, you know, back then, Soviet aggression was scaring all of Europe, so they wanted to be in NATO, and then they established the EU. The Middle East was always uh, divided between support for the Soviet Union, Egypt for, is a prime example, and countries like Israel, a democracy that was in our camp. It's looking like that. It's looking like people are deciding they have to take a side here which is not a good thing, but it's it's absolutely predictable given Russia's kind of aggression and and, and Iran's kind of rogue behavior. Uh, you know, you t talked earlier about Saudi Arabia wanting an alignment against Iran. Well, they've been fighting a war in Yemen against Houthis who were armed by Iran. So they and they and those Houthis have been you know sending rockets into Saudi Arabia for the last few years. So there, there's a ceasefire there now too. But so the 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 alignment is against Iran by the Gulf states and the monarchies. Uh, and Russia wants to wants to you know the, he's got the bad boys club with Syria and Iran, and everyone's picking sides, and it's uh, you know it's 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 cold war like. I wonder, Nina Maria, you are in Tel Aviv. Does it feel that way to you that we are returning to sort of choosing sides of the cold war? It does, and I think what James has identified feels very real here, as it always does if if you're sitting in the Middle East. I mean, one addition to that, um, perhaps at a more human level, is that um, the concern concerns uh, among Israelis are very human and very real. Uh, there have been protests here in Israel about the cost of living and rising house prices. Uh, and, you know, perhaps not unlike Americans or Brits uh, or people in many different countries around the world, 
you know, there's certainly the, 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 the political alliances, the geopolitical um, threats, but at, at the heart of, I think, every voter are, are concerns about energy prices and the cost of living, uh, which, you know, I'm sure people in Iran, I know people in Iran are also feeling. So, you know, I think... Um, to bring it back to a, perhaps a human level, uh, when you talk about Biden's visit to Israelis, the first thing that they want to talk about is the cost of living. Mm. Well, I'm sure this will continue to be a conversation. Uh, let's move over to Sri Lanka, though. Uh, Sri Lanka's leadership has an interim president. That's after former president Gatabaya Rajapaksa fled the country. Protesters broke into his residence earlier this week and took over the presidential palace. Rajapaksa resigned via email, and lawmakers there are set to convene Saturday to determine a new leader. Just before we came on the air, I spoke to Matthew Castle. He is a correspondent for Vice News in Sri Lanka. Who is currently the president of Sri Lanka? <laughs> uh, good question. So today, Gotabaya Rajapaksa's official resignation was submitted and accepted um, by the government in this country and so an interim uh, president was installed, and his name is Renil Wickramasinghe. So he is now the interim president, at least until next Wednesday when the parliament will meet to decide who's going to um, take over as the real president until uh, former president Rajapaksa's term is to finish two years from now. So where is Rajapaksa? So... Now, former President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the country with his wife and two bodyguards. He first went to the Maldives, which is very close to Sri Lanka, but that was just a quick layover before he ended up in Singapore, where he, had, where he is now. Uh, Singapore has said that he hasn't asked for asylum, um, and people are wondering what his next steps will be, if he's going to stay there or go somewhere else. He has a U.S. passport, he has U.S. citizenship, so people are wondering if maybe he will go to the U.S., so can you remind us what started all of this? What actually inspired the protests that led to Rajapaksa fleeing? It's complicated. It's kind of a perfect storm of factors. Um, for the past few years, uh, you know, the economy of Sri Lanka has been suffering as it has in many places because of inflation, because of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, Sri Lanka has its own unique uh, reasons for why things have gotten so bad. And a lot of people blame that on the Rajapaksas, who have, uh, the family has ruled this country for much of the last 20 years. They accuse them of corruption and mismanagement that has kind of uh, destroyed this economy and dried up its foreign reserves, uh, making it impossible to import even the most basic goods into Sri Lanka. And that has understandably upset a lot of people and driven them out to the street, demanding that the Rajapaksas leave office. Was that... The, the sum total of what protesters want was Rajapaksa to resign? That's what has uh, united protesters uh, these past few months that protests have been happening in this country. Now the question is what's going to happen now that they've achieved their main demand, which was for Gotabaya uh, to leave the country, to go. That was the slogan of the protest. Now, because the new uh, interim president, Wickramasinghe, is an ally of the Rajapaksas, a lot of protesters are not happy with him and also want to see him go. But a lot of the political establishment and even some of the protesters just want anyone to come to power, hoping that, the, that they'll be able to get this economy back on its feet. 
The timeline is is quite quick. Elections for a new president are expected to be held next week, July 20th. Um, what do you know about the candidates who are being considered by the Sri Lankan parliament? Well, we don't know all the candidates who are going to be considered next week. We do know one of them is Wickramasinghe, the interim president, because he's being supported by the party of uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. They've come out today, shortly after he was announced as interim president, and said they want him to become uh, the real president after next Wednesday. So, yes, it is a quick turnaround, but everyone is very eager to resolve the political crisis as quickly as possible because they know that this country needs uh, bailouts in the, fo- in the form of uh, loans from international lenders, and that probably will not happen until there is a government in place. So what is, uh, what is the uh, state, I guess, of chaos in Sri Lanka? Did protests end once Rajapaksa left? Yes. um, I mean, the protests are still continuing, but not as they were, you know, a week ago. Protesters, uh, in an attempt to put pressure on Gotabaya to step down, and it seems to have worked, they occupied a number of buildings, uh, including the, you know, Sri Lankan White House, if you will, the the president's residence. And it seems to have worked. I mean, that's what got, a few days later, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, he fled the country. Um, But yesterday... After it looked like he was going to resign officially, they gave up those buildings back to the authorities, hoping that that would pave the way for the politicians to uh, figure out how to resolve the crisis. We've been speaking with Matthew Castle, correspondent for Vice News in Sri Lanka. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. Jen, I wonder what are you watching for in these developments from Sri Lanka? Yeah, so for me, you know, I think it's really important to underscore what Matt said about Renil Wickramasinghe. He is wildly unpopular as well because he's seen as a very close ally of the Rajapaksas. So, yes, right now he's the interim president. If he becomes, you know, if he's elected and becomes the official president, right, and, you know, is going to serve out the Rajapaksa term, um, it's unclear whether protesters will accept that, right? And If not, we could see a return to the kind of bigger um, conflagration of protests. So I'm really watching to see what happens in the next week with the election of a prime minister, what uh, president, what happens, who do they pick? And if they pick Wickramasinghe, how do the protesters respond? Yeah, I mean, mean, one person died and 84 were injured during those protests. It was quite chaotic. And should they return, uh, James the Sri Lankan people could be in for more instability? You know, I don't think it's just Sri Lanka. I think that we have not anticipated fully how the the pandemic and the Ukraine war have increased inflation and food insecurity around the world, and that's politically destabilizing. We have to talk about this exchange between former U.S. Ambassador and National Security Advisor John Bolton and CNN's Jake Tapper. For context... Earlier this week, those two were talking about the ability of Donald Trump to mastermind the plan to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Take a listen. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. That is the central point. I I do want to ask a follow up when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup. And you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but... Uh, Successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took 
But I think there's another. I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though. I think I'm sure there is. So Nina Maria, this is what's sometimes referred to as saying the quiet part out loud. Do you think this was just a mistake? Bolton's bragging. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Um, there's a lot of commentary about how, you know, his comments pose a real setback for U.S. policies abroad. I mean, maybe. I think actually for people already depressed about America's reputation overseas, anyone worried about America's image internationally uh, or that Russia and China are busy expanding their sphere of influence, it's another PR disaster for uh, for America. Um, there's a lot of anger over his comments uh, and a lot of speculation over which coups he was actually talking about. The Reagan administration in Nicaragua, the US and Iraq, Haiti maybe. I mean, you know, not in terms of his own involvement, but uh, some are saying that Bolton's remarks raise more questions about when to, uh, what went on um, secretly behind the scenes in Venezuela, which is what he was referencing. Uh, the wider criticism is that Bolton's bragging is representative of the era that we're living in, uh, that it shows a total disregard, a kind of lack of respect for America's institutions, which ultimately undermines American foreign policy further. Predictably, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry is saying it just confirmed what they already knew, uh, that the US routinely interferes in other countries' internal affairs and has made overthrowing uh, their government's standard practice. So it doesn't just play into the you know, minds of conspiracy theorists. Um, this really has done America no favors at all. So Wednesday, a spokesperson for the Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry called for an international investigation into Bolton's remarks. Jen, do you think this could end up having staying power, that this could become a, a significant issue? I mean, look, you know, when he when he said Venezuela, I think that was a, a good way for him to get out of what he had said, because that was done pretty much in daylight, right? Everyone saw what the U.S. was doing by backing Juan Guaido as a legitimate president of Venezuela. But he said coups with an S. Right, yeah, he said, he said plural, to be fair. So, yes. Um, look, you know, I don't think that there, there's a lot going on. I don't think that there's going to be any big, giant investigation. Um, I think, you know... As Nina Maria said, it is sort of a kind of acknowledgement that, look, everyone knows that the United States is long meddling in, in other countries' affairs. That's not a secret. I think the brazenness of it, um, you know, the lack of shame uh, or any kind of uh, questioning of maybe that wasn't the greatest idea in some cases, um, understanding the consequences of things that we, you know, in the United States thought it was doing things that were good, thought it was toppling a bad regime a lot of times really nasty things come out, you know, as a result. And you end up with an even worse leader, horrific war crimes, et cetera. So, you know, the lack of kind of self-reflection and the fact that, let's be clear, the fact that John Bolton is still a prominent figure in foreign policy circles and is being interviewed, right, was the national security advisor in 2019, you know, until 2019, despite a lot of other issues that, you know, came to light, his involvement in the war in Iraq, et cetera. So the fact that, you know, he alone is still a respected, in some circles, member of the foreign policy establishment goes to show that, you know, there isn't often much accountability for U.S. officials who do things that are destabilizing around the world, and they end up just failing up. James, John, John Bolton has expressed support for coups as a technique in the past. In an interview with Al Jazeera in 2008, he said coups can sometimes be, quote, a necessary way to advance American interest, end quote. 
To what extent does U.S. leadership try to distance himself? Did, or, or do they? Do they? Are, are they basically taking the idea that he's an outlier in that opinion? Well, I mean, it makes the point that this darling of the right is, you know, and supposed former diplomat has never been diplomatic about anything. I mean, he's a hardline regime change kind of guy. That's why he loved the Iraq war. He's called for regime change in North Korea, regime change in Iran. I mean, this is who John Bolton is. He's the guy who, as UN, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations said, you could lop off, you know, the top floors of the U.N. building in New York and no one would notice. He's just, I mean, he, he, he glorifies in this sort of, Hardline rhetoric uh, always has, and but make no mistake, this is a great gift to our adversaries. I mean, it, it really is. You know, he's, China's jumped on it, Russia's jumped on it, Venezuela's jumped on it, Bolivia's jumped on it. You know, it, he's given a gift to everyone who says America is just this 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 hegemonic bully around the world, and all its talk about being a supporter of democracy is just so much bunk. So, thanks, thanks, Ambassador Bolton. Moving on, Wednesday, after months of global grain shortages, negotiators in Turkey said they had reached a deal to resume grain exports from Ukraine. Now, there were hours of negotiations in Istanbul. Turkey's defense minister then announced Ukraine and Russia had reached an agreement to allow grain shipments to travel through the Black Sea. Uh, The deal would end an impasse that's left more than 20 million tons of much-needed grain stuck in Ukrainian uh, ports. And UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says more work is still needed to finalize this deal, but he says talks had made a critical step forward. In a world darkened by global crisis, today at last we have a ray of hope. A ray of hope to ease human suffering and alleviate hunger around the world. A ray of hope to bring a measure of much-needed stability to the global food system. Jen, what more do we know about this deal and what has not yet been included in the deal? Yeah, so Turkey said the deal includes what they're calling joint controls for checking shipments um, and also potentially Turkey ensuring the safety of Black Sea corridors by forming um, what they're calling a coordination center to basically coordinate all of this. Russia's main concern, according to its own foreign ministry statements, is they want their own control to be able to inspect Ukrainian vessels going out and in to rule out arms smuggling, right? They're trying to keep Ukraine from being restocked and resupplied with arms. Ukraine obviously would not love to have its ships being inspected by the Russians with whom they are directly at war. So the, you know, the fact that they are going to try to work out some sort of, some sort of coordination center fu- function to be able to kind of coordinate all of this Um, potentially is good. We don't know any of the details really beyond that, though. We don't know who's going to be doing the inspections. Uh, We don't know who is going to be necessarily ensuring the safety of these ships. Is it going to be Turkey? Does Turkey really want to get in the middle of this? Um, Is it going to be some sort of UN mechanism, right? The UN was at these, um, representatives were at these talks as well. Um, So, you know, I think it's, it's a positive sign in the sense that anything that seems like a possible deal on grain looks like a positive sign. I think the UN was a little bit more gung-ho on how positive it was, and Turkey, (laughs) whereas Russia and Ukraine, you know, bitter enemies at this point. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit less so. Uh, We're very much, uh, uh, you know, distrustful of each other. So I think we'll see, you know, in the the coming week what happens, whether we do end up getting a deal. Um, It would be massively significant if they did. I just, you know, my being a natural cynic and just knowing the way that Russia has not negotiated uh, as of late, I, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. 
Um, speaking of Russia, Russian missile strikes hit two university complexes this morning, injuring at least four people. On Thursday, Ukraine's president condemned Russia for carrying out an attack on the central city of Venezia. Uh, Ukrainian authorities say at least 23 people were killed by Russian missiles there, and uh, Zelensky called it an act of terrorism. Al Jazeera also reported Ukraine had devastated Russian artillery depots ahead of a summer offensive. Uh, Nina Maria, can you give us more details on these reports we're getting about Ukraine planning for a counteroffensive? Um, yes, uh, it's been called a kind of summer counteroffensive. I mean, essentially, Ukraine has been begging for modern weaponry, uh, long-range precision rocket systems from the West for months, and now it is getting them, which is changing the dynamics of the war uh, with the Ukrainians now clearly capable of hitting Russian ammunition dumps and operational centers much deeper behind uh, front lines. Uh, There's evidence that the targeting has been effective uh, and that in the past week there have been huge explosions on Russian assets. We don't have many details, but the Ukrainian interior ministry uh, says that in the past two weeks, uh, Ukraine's been able to destroy two dozen warehouses with Russian weapons and fuels. So uh, there is a sense that the dynamic on the battlefield are changing, but um, yeah, horrific news on these missile strikes. Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a statement condemning the deportation of at least 900,000 Ukrainian citizens from Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. Blinken said that number included 260,000 children, some of them separated from their families. James, why haven't we heard more about this? Well, we've heard we've heard reports, but this this is the the most substantive we've report we've heard, and it has numbers that are mind boggling. They yeah. estimate between nine hundred and one point six million, which is would just be an astounding number of deportations. This, to be clear, is a war crime. It is against everything that the Geneva Conventions is about. Uh, and we've seen this playbook before. The Soviet Union did this with, to the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania after World War II. Took all the intelligentsia out of the country to, and you know, deported them to Siberia, never to be seen again. We saw it with the Chechnya war where they did something similar. This is right out of the playbook for, for, for Moscow, and it is really horrific because they are apparently sending them to filtration camps and where they are taking all of their electronics, taking their passports, interrogating them, searching them, and the ones who are not deemed uh, you know, worthy of being deported are disappeared. So this is horrific stuff, and the world needs to have a, take a very close look at this. Uh, Jen, I wonder how credible these numbers are. I mean, as James said, it could be as high as 1.6 million. How can you move that many people? Well, you know, I think one of the really important things to understand and to remember is that, you know, Russia has more or less silenced its entire population from speaking out, saying anything, you know, against uh, the war all independent media. I mean, Russia never had super open media to begin with, but, you know, after the war, since the war began, um, most any independent media have largely been kicked out or are keeping mum. So it's really hard to actually have, you know, it's not like we have a ton of 
uh, you know, members of the of the UN or international human rights groups, you know, traipsing through Siberia um, and keeping an eye on things. So it's, you know, it's unclear to what degree the numbers are, but I think what you can see on the other side is how many people are missing, right? How many people are gone? The, the people who whose families are reporting, uh, you know, my relative, my loved one is missing. Um, I think it's important to, to add, though, um, James is, is absolutely right about this potentially being a war crime. Um, it's potentially even even a step up, um, you know, worse um, than a war crime. It could actually uh, be an element of proving genocidal intent if they are, especially mm. if they are taking. The, it seems to be they're taking the children and adopting them out to Russian families. It could actually show an intent to destroy the Ukrainians as a people and as a nation, um, which could potentially prove genocidal intent toward an actual genocide um, uh, resolution uh, uh, conviction. So, you know, it, it's not just a war crime. It could potentially be even worse. I think it it does, you know, kind of show the degree to which Russia is trying to destroy Ukraine and, and not actually allow it to continue to be its own nation, its own country. It still maintains that Ukraine is part of Russia, et cetera. And this is kind of following through on trying to make sure that that is a reality on the ground. Okay, so uh, more people are traveling internationally this summer compared to last year. The effects of the pandemic are still making air travel quite difficult, particularly in Europe. Uh, The German airline Lufthansa announced this week they're canceling an additional 2,000 flights from Munich to Frankfurt this summer. Nina, I hope you're not flying Lufthansa. Um, These cancellations are on top of the 770 cancellations made over the past week. What's causing all of this? Uh, it's mainly staff shortages. Um, I've I've had to cross the Atlantic and, and travel within Europe three times in the last two months. Uh, and I can tell you that it's become a truly horrendous experience. My, my most recent time at Heathrow uh, Airport, uh, I was stuck on the runway for more than an hour because there weren't oh. enough ground staff or buses to take people off planes. Uh, I think there was one bus to service 30 planes. Uh, you've seen the pictures of mountains of luggage piled up, uh, luggage getting lost. I mean, we've been deploying journalists on a weekly basis across Europe to the G7, to the NATO summit, and our camera crews have to travel all over the place. And we've now issued special instructions not to check in any essential filming uh, equipment at all. We can carry everything because the risk has just become, you know, too great that you arrive somewhere without your kit. Uh, My brother landed in Gatwick last week at one in the morning, several delays, all trains and buses were cancelled, there were no taxis. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, a major (laughs) breakdown, basically, of transport services and travel isn't what it used to be. James, on on the the scale of one to ten from, gosh, I love the airport to please send me anywhere but there, where are you on dreading air travel? I'm pretty close to uh, a two. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Heathrow myself recently, and it was, you know, it's clearly demand is a lot higher than people anticipated, and staffing's a lot lower, and and it's just that. There's just not enough people to to basically process all the travelers, and it was a nightmare. I mean, at that point, there was also pandemic issues. America required, you know, a a negative test within 24 hours. That caused problems. So it's a mess. Yeah, it is. Um, My thanks this week to Jennifer Williams. She's a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of The Negotiators podcast. Uh, Nina Maria Potts, safe and quick travels to you. Global News Director for Future Story News. James Kitfield. James is the senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, contributing writer at The Atlantic. Thanks so much to all of you for being here. One A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. This is 1A.